This is Committable. I have spent decades of my life trying to navigate society with a deeply ingrained prescribed identity as a patient. That identity cultivated a belief that I was powerless. To try and better understand what that experience might be like for others, I spoke to Maria Hornbacher. I'm Maria Hornbacher. I am the New York Times bestselling author of five books, four of which are on aspects of mental health and uh, to some extent mental health recovery. I've talked about eating disorders, bipolar disorder, addiction, and what I'm working on now is kind of a, a manifesto on uh, mental health recovery and how it can be reframed and how psychiatry can work toward recovery for people uh, who deal with mental health disorders rather than working toward continued dependence. I asked Maria about some of her previous experiences, being voluntarily admitted to an inpatient unit for bipolar disorder. Specifically, I asked if she was aware about alternatives to an inpatient stay at the time when she was admitted. No, I was not aware uh, until I had, I mean, my last hospitalization for bipolar disorder was 2007. So I've not been hospitalized since 2007. At that time in 2007 and for the 10 or so years prior, I was in and out of the hospital roughly every couple of months. Uh, and the expectation I had at that time was that I would skate along at kind of sub, <laughs> subpar existence level, and then I'd get sick again, and I'd have an episode of mania or depression, and then I'd be walloped back into, and so like, yes, voluntarily admitting myself, but also there were no mobile crisis psych units. There were no temporary housing options for temporary psych acute care. Um, none of that existed yet, or if it did, nobody told me. And that's interesting to me now, because as I look back on it historically, of course, those things existed. But if you report to uh, triage and knock on the window and say, I have bipolar, and they buzz you in and you go right on upstairs, I mean, you've got a straight shot up to the psych ward. If that is their expectation, and they don't, you know, approach you with any alternatives, and you're not aware of any alternatives yourself. I mean, when you're dealing with acute mania or depression or psychosis, you aren't Googling, how do I get better? You know, you're Googling, get me down off this. You know I mean? Like you're like, just get me out of here. And so that acute, that crisis model, I think really becomes a problem. So that's almost two decades of inpatient experiences. How does that shape your ability to form an identity? That becomes trauma. You know, I didn't have a diagnosis of PTSD, but now I do. And I'm afraid of hospitals. I'm afraid of doctors. I won't go to the doc. I mean, like very odd, you know, so over time, my ability to form an identity, I think was shaped in part by I am ill. This is who I am. And I've heard people talk in um, like NAMI support groups or, uh, you know, support groups for people who deal with mental illness. People talk about, they're like, I am my schizophrenia. I am depression. I am bipolar. It's so sad to me because I'm like, I am a, teacher and a writer and a friend and a niece and a daughter, you know, I mean, those are my identities now, but that is after a lot of work at reframing identity for myself, you know, really a lot of work to see myself as functional outside of, of an institutional setting, to see myself as viable, like a viable life form outside of who's medicating me and what, you know, control and who's running my, you know, power of attorney right now. It became very, very repetitive and very sad to me. And um, 
eventually it stopped seeming acceptable to me that that was what I was going to settle for. Was there a specific catalyst to this sort of reclaiming of your identity? I do think there was. You know, it's interesting. I uh, started doing research on a book on mental health right around the time the DSM-5 was being formalized and critiqued, heavily critiqued by some very, you know, interesting arguments were saying, you know, there, there's no science under this. That's not strictly true, but there wasn't a lot of science under the diagnostic categorizations, right? So I started going, well, what if bipolar does have 17 subtypes? What distinguishes that? And I started going, what do I have? You know, if I haven't been in the hospital a long time, what do I have? And I started looking at my charts and going, okay, they've diagnosed me with everything under the sun and I don't have any of these symptoms and haven't for a long time. What do I have? And I started going, well, the science, you know, I remember uh, there was a line in the New York Times where somebody said the golden age of neuroscience is right around the bend. And I started doing the research on the neuroscience. I mean, my training is as a reporter and there, there is no golden age of neuroscience right around the bend. And there isn't any science underneath the diagnoses. They're entirely phenomenological. I mean, they are based on symptoms. So philosophically speaking, if I don't have the symptoms of bipolar, I am no longer bipolar. But bipolar is chronic, so shouldn't I still be medicated and I'll become bipolar again if I don't take my meds? Well, I don't take meds now. And I haven't had an episode of mania or depression in years. So was I never bipolar? I mean, that's the thing. It's like, if we don't know the answers to those questions, there's a lot we don't know about who we're locking up and why. Mario's experiences really resonate with me. I continue to struggle with how to claim an identity that I can be proud of after being told multiple times by multiple professionals that I am sick and an involuntary commitment was the appropriate action for someone like me. To try and better understand the perspective of someone tasked with evaluating the mental health of others, Committable producer Jim McQuaid spoke to psychologist Sashin Hazel. My name is Sashin Hazel. I am a clinical psychologist. I like to say forensically trained because in Massachusetts, you're only a forensic psychologist if you are working in a certain place. So it's like a live status. Right now, I'm the clinical director at an outpatient psychiatric practice. I also work in a trauma clinic. We call it the forensic team, doing essentially parenting evals, trauma evals for usually DCF are sometimes the attorneys involved in these cases. My place on the forensic team that I'm on or my specialty is sort of when I get a lot of, I've evaluated a lot of mothers immigrating from somewhere in the Caribbean, which is where my my background, my ethnic background, or somewhere in Africa. And so I'm often having to explain through my report to DCF the layers of issues around just culture coming from a collectivist culture and parenting practices and the community that that person has here. What was their ability to continue those practices? Do they understand the more individualistic practices around parenting here in the U.S. and what's expected? And then you throw in mental health. And so I am often, as a Black psychologist, more able to state that, yes, there are cultural issues, but there's still a mental illness. I'm really excited to hear a lot of what you've said, because a lot of the conversations I've had with, and just, so I'm a sociologist, and one of the Mm -hmm. things that jumps out at me is how 
some clinicians focus really a, a ton on just the individual patient and, and don't a lot of times think about the broader context. And in the course of your description, you talked about the individual culture, the system and the community and all these different layers that you're taking into account? Well, I think that's why I like evaluation and not therapy, to be okay. honest. And I came to this work not because, you know, I don't have any long history of therapy or I don't have a dysfunctional, well, I mean, not necessarily dysfunctional family, but it's more of a social justice. Like the reason I got interested, my parents were correction officers in the Bronx. And I remember like, take your daughter to work day. And I would go with my mom to work. She worked in the women's jail. And you know, you have these stereotypes and conceptions of people in jail and what, they, what they're supposed to look like and act like. And so I thought I was gonna be seeing these like, you know, I was like maybe eight. I thought I was gonna see these like negative people. And I mean, I was fascinated, but I was the total opposite. They were regular people. It just was a very humanizing experience. And I thought, I wonder how these people got here. Like what, I just became curious about that. And so that's kind of the line that I pursued. And so I've landed, luckily, fortunately, where I wanted to on doing the work that I wanted to, but it's, it hasn't been about therapy. It's been more about making sense of people. And it, the reason forensic was an option is because I knew it would put me in a place to work with disenfranchised people who I felt had been possibly misunderstood or maybe not fully understood. And so I do a lot, even when I do testing, just regular neuropsych testing, I often do long feedback sessions because I'm doing a lot of educating, like self-education. I always tell people I could be wrong, but I just want you to understand how I came to this conclusion so that you can correctly and adequately describe that to the next person or, you know, so that you're informed because I cannot tell you how many people are misdiagnosed with like a bipolar disorder and really they've had a complex trauma history, early trauma history, or even some of the stuff around ADHD. And, you know, people don't always take these things into context. On the flip side of that though, having worked in hospital settings, you have to make a judgment. You've got to put that first diagnosis down based upon maybe a 15 minute interaction. I did about a year of working on the Riverside crisis team right after I graduated. And you know, you have to decide, do they need a higher level of care? And what level of care is that? Is that inpatient hospitalization? And there's a lot of insurance stuff, insurance authorizations and finding a bed. Like there's a lot of red tape there. So you really have to have your reasons. The red tape that people involved in these systems have to navigate is created by policy. Policy that is informed by research. But who is that research designed to speak to? And what voice is given to those who have to create their own path to recovery? Here is author Maria Hornbacher again, talking about the process of redefining recovery. I have really for myself redefined recovery. So like as I was doing that research into the science or lack thereof underneath it, I started finding myself way more swayed and interested in the, the oral histories given by people who dealt with mental health diagnoses, many of whom started saying, this is a very, very gross and blunt way of framing this, but psychiatry didn't do me any favors. What has done me favors is figuring out how to live, not how to stay 
safe. The, the kind of default to the least possible risk approach of psychiatry is problematic for anyone who's an artist, anyone who's creative, anyone who has a different approach to mental health recovery. And so reframing recovery for me started being like, okay, you've had me on these meds that prevent me from finding words for 15 years. I'm a writer. I really freaking need my words. Like I really do. And so going off those meds, suddenly I'm writing again. Suddenly I'm creative again. And it doesn't mean meds are by definition bad by any means. But I kept saying to my doctor as I was, when I was at my most acutely, you know, medicated, I kept saying, you know, I can't think, drive or see anymore. And he's like, but you're not in the hospital. I'm like, no, I can't leave my house, man. You know, I'm definitely not in the hospital. Can't find the stairs. And so like that debilitating nature of that approach was what I eventually began to, as I started taking oral histories from people, they were like, what I found worked was clubhouse model. What I found worked was recovery oriented psychiatry. What I found working was all of these models of meditation and mindfulness, the psychosocial approaches. And I, you know, once I started looking at the numbers in that too, they just have better outcomes. They just do. I mean, the rates of people who recover or do better, who have positive outcomes in psychosocial treatments, as compared to the people who are succeeding on one med, like it's not even comparable. And so like, if we're looking at a model of biological psychiatry that assumes there's a biological origin, there's a biological treatment, we will continue to fail in this epic way. Did these oral histories change your perspective on the, the system of, as a whole? The system as a whole, of course, that implies an integratedness or even a continuum of care that does not exist. We would love it to, right? We'd love there to be like, you're in the hospital and then they hand you off to the social worker who hooks you up with Clubhouse. We know that's not how it's happening. You know, you can't even get your meds at CVS when you leave the hospital half the time. So like the system is a term that is, I think, ambitious for what we actually have in terms of mental health care in this country. We have lots of intersecting systems, all of which are for-profit, and that's a problem. And so what I saw people doing was gravitating in their recovery toward places that would help them get jobs, find community centers, volunteer, get housing, get creative again. And so engaging in life in a really different way, rather than stepping back and being like, I'm fragile, I'm broken, I'm inherently diseased and flawed, like that mentally, you will stay there. You know, you will stay there. But if people are like, okay, you may have this diagnosis. What do you want to do for a job though? And, and when people started going, oh, I have all these skills. I was, you know, in a former life before I was living in hospitals full time, I was an accountant. You know, I was a teacher. I was a stay-at-home mom. I was a yoga maniac, you know, whatever. So like what I saw in these oral histories was people who had returned to a sense of self that had been really blurred, if not erased, by the, the system of mental health, you know, care. So it sounds like there's a really subtle but important shift there, which is that treatment is activity. It is doing something. Yeah, to me, it's engagement. I mean, how many freaking pairs of moccasins are you going to make in OT? You know, I don't know how many pairs of moccasins I've made in my lifetime, but I assure you, I have way more fun teaching college. I really do. And that's what I do for a living, right? So like, why wasn't anybody saying, you know, do you want to go back to work? Do you want to finish this degree? Do you want to do some research while you're here? You know, that's not what's happening. They're in there literally making me color. I remember a great conversation I had with a doctor. This was so classic. This was practically one floor over the cuckoo's nest. I had broken my arm and gone into the hospital on the same day. They send up an orthopedist to look at my arm, right? And I say to him, when am I going to be able to type again? 
And he's like, what do you need to type for? I said, well, I'm a, I'm a reporter. That's what I do for a living. He goes, what do you mean you're a reporter? I said, I write books. I write nonfiction books. That's what I do. He goes, what do you, mean? you don't write books. And the nurse is like in the corner going, uh, sir, sir, uh, before you go any further here. And at that point I had four books out like three New York Times bestsellers. And the guy is telling me, you don't write books. And then he goes, well, it's not like you have a book contract. I'm like, we're done here, sir. But I couldn't leave. Like, where am I going to go? Storm off down the hall in my hospital gown and hospital footies? The lack of dignity that is imposed upon patients and that patient identity, that is so devaluing and so humiliating that we lose a sense of what is my core self? What do I love? What am I good at? What is my value? You know, how many times do you have to hear Nami say the burden of mental illness before you're like, are you actually talking to mentally ill people or are you talking to their families? Like, who are you trying to help? How do you engage in a conversation where you can advocate for yourself when you do need to go to the doctor? The trauma around hospitals and doctors for me is pretty stark. And I don't want to pretend that that's the case for everybody, but it is true for me. So like, how do I advocate for myself? I have had a lot of really silly Kafka-esque conversations with physicians going in and saying, okay, you have nine diagnoses, several of which are contraindicated, and you're giving me a med that's going to make me die. Can we not do that? Like, that's a stupid conversation to have to have. Like, how do I advocate for myself? It really becomes, I have to be so much more educated than the physician I'm talking to to prevent myself from being given meds that have literally put me in the ICU before. So like, what do we do? We retrain doctors, we retrain PAs, we retrain people maybe a little bit, but beyond that, I'm not really sure. In this conversation about identity, recovery, and navigating systems of care, I asked Maria if there is one thing, one thing that could click into place and get everyone involved in these systems on the same page. To me, there is. To me, there is the one thing, and that is recognizing that people with mental illness aren't crazy. They aren't. They may or may not have an organic illness, but they are dealing with distress, not delusion half the time. One categorical diagnosis deals with delusions. One. The rest of the people are dealing with strong emotions, regulation of mood, impulsivity. Like Delusion is quite uncommon actually. And so like when I'm dealing with an EMT who's like, they're there, little lady, and I deck him, it's not because I'm out of control. It's because he called me little lady. This sort of the paternalistic attitude. And so yes, understanding the law is important because I've had to explain to ossifers before that you can't arrest me for being mad at the way you're talking to me. That is not a crime, nor can you put me under a hold if I am not a danger to myself or others. That's a super basic law. So I've had amazing, I think, you know, I'll tell you, I think EMTs and firefighters should win the award of awesome people of the year because they are the only people who are dealing with you face-to-face -face, like as a fellow human being. Once you get into law enforcement, hospitals, doctors, the paternalism becomes so profound that it is intolerable and it is unfair and laws get broken. To try and better understand the perspective of those who have just been given the awesome people of the year award, I spoke to Joshua Yeager. I'm Joshua Yeager. I'm a physician assistant in Massachusetts working in cardiac surgery. Uh, before I went to physician assistant school, I was a emergency medical technician and an ER tech, meaning I helped out doing vital signs and other tasks around the emergency department for uh, four years. In episode one, I described the experience of being section 12 
an experience where the opinion of one psychologist led to me being strapped into a gurney by EMTs and wheeled onto a locked psych ward. The memory of being escorted with a smile into a hallway where people in uniform are waiting to physically restrain me, that memory haunts me. So in order to better understand what those EMTs may have been experiencing, I asked Joshua about his experiences navigating Section 12s as an EMT. Starting with the question, what is a Section 12? To me, what a Section 12 is, is in uh, a, quote, 72-hour hold or an involuntary psychiatric uh, hold. So uh, what we were taught was a section when we were responding to someone or a patient who was Section 12 was brought to the emergency department. It was an involuntary psychiatric hold, usually brought on by concerns from family or other physicians or friends. What sort of training did you receive to handle or approach a Section 12? If I remember from EMT school, we had a, a section of, uh, about what Section 12 meant. It was mostly focused on what our role was, not necessarily what the law was. So what to do when you respond to someone with, uh, who is Section 12 and what the limits of how you could safely transport that person to the uh, emergency department, you know, and basically how to navigate that scenario such that you could... Uh, do so safely and kind of make sure to de-escalate. The training EMT programs are pretty short. Mine was over a summer during school. So you can imagine how short the training was for a Section 12 patient was. When you interacted with the community around someone who's been Section 12, what was that experience like? A lot of anxiety, I think, and especially when it was family members, a lot of guilt and you know, there's an overwhelming desire to do what's right. But whenever you take away someone's rights in this kind of fashion, it's very dramatic and scarring. And it's, you know, uh, and I think no one ever wanted to invoke a Section 12 on someone because it just felt unnatural. I mean, it always felt unnatural to me. The idea that I would forcibly restrain someone was always very disturbing to me. I don't think I ever really had to do anything that forcible, but knowing that that was something that could happen was was certainly distressing to me. And I, I got that sense from a lot of families and of people I interacted with there too, that no one wanted to do this, but you just wanted to make sure someone stayed safe. Were you ever given any sort of techniques to uh, prevent burnout? No, uh, I don't. When I was an EMT, I don't think uh, burnout was something that was talked about quite as widely as, you know, now is a bit of a more of a recognized uh, phenomenon within medicine, especially within emergency medicine. I don't think it was as talked about quite as much. And I, I got from the uh, older emergency department technicians that I talked to, you just sort of did this until you literally couldn't anymore. The job in general, not necessarily just this specific type of patient. After your time as an EMT, did those experiences expand your awareness of mental illness in general? Oh, for sure. Being an emergency department technician, you know, and being on the, quote, front lines of patients that would come to us with a variety of psychiatric uh, illnesses really opened my eyes. I actually became quite friendly with a psychiatrist who I later uh, worked with in uh one of the hospital where at least we didn't work together, but I knew him. So I got to know him pretty well. And I got exposed to a wide variety of uh, mental illness that I, you know, previously had no exposure to. And it was 
really eye-opening for me, especially, like I said, seeing how all the onus of treating these patients a lot of times came to an emergency department that was, you know, not necessarily built to do that. And I thought, you know, it really became apparent that I don't know why all this has to be done by the emergency department. There must be a better way to do this. And there must be a better way to either train emergency departments to do this better, staff them better, or do this some other way. Because, you know, someone trying to treat four different heart attacks at the same time just can't possibly give the appropriate treatment to someone with, uh, you know, acute psychosis or any number of uh, acute psychiatric illnesses. Is there anything about this experience that you you want to share? Any any insight? Any awareness? I think in my uh, emergency department days, I think seeing how uh, the emergency department had to become the front line for patients with acute psychiatric illness really didn't serve anyone. It certainly didn't serve the emergency department. And first and foremost, it didn't really serve the patients in a very helpful way. I felt, you know, a lot of times they would come to the emergency department because there was no acute facility for them to go. They would end up having to stay in a room in an emergency department, which I can only imagine to a patient probably felt a bit like jail, which I feel it's probably the worst possible way to, to go about this. At least it seemed to me so. I think from all my experience treating patients with acute psychiatric illness, that sticks out the most is that the system that has now just kind of come down on an emergency department, I, I don't think is providing the best possible care. And I think emergency departments have always tried to adapt to the patients they have to take care of because that's what everyone in the medical field does. They adapt to the needs of their patients. But I don't know if this is the best way to help patients. That was my takeaway experience when I left being in emergency department tech. The experiences that Joshua shared seemed to me to impart, to some degree, the sense of being caught in a system. A system that can disempower not only those identified as patients, but also those designated to care for those patients. I have spent two decades feeling like the road to recovery is a stealth mission. And the only way I can survive is to never get caught in that system again. Here is one last segment from the conversation with Maria Hornbacher about what resources she would recommend for someone trying to find their own path towards recovery. Recovery research, uh, there are a couple of great centers like the Psychiatric Rehabilitation Center at Boston University has a huge back, like a huge library of recovery oriented research, not just like how to manage your mental health, but really looks at like what are alternative strategies? What are psychosocial services and strategies that are effective for people with your particular diagnosis? Clubhouse, for me, like the Fountain House Clubhouse model, the Clubhouse International model, to me is the one and only straight up effective approach to mental health care that exists. You know, I do think most folks need therapy. I do. Beyond that, it is so individual. It is so cobbled together. We do need some coordination of that, but really to me, a lot of it is reframing your identity and re-engaging with your community in some way. Those are the things that keep us well, not just people with diagnoses, but everybody else too. And the clubhouse model, that's a peer support type of model, right? It is, and it has nothing to do with mental health care. There's no therapy, there's no support groups, there's yoga, there's job training, there's data entry, there's a library, there's housing supports. You can clean the coffee maker. I mean, what it does is engages you in a community and gives you the option of figuring out where your skills are. For people who deal with life skill issues, 
there's that. And for people who deal with like job reentry issues, there's that. There's no kind of stratification of like high functioning, low functioning. You're all there and you're making the clubhouse work and that's it. In all of my experiences with commitments, both involuntary and voluntary, I felt constrained, powerless to advocate for what I believed was the right thing to do. Hearing these conversations helps give humanity to all of the different perspectives of people trying to navigate these systems. And there seems to be at least one thing that we all agree on. There has got to be a better way to help people in distress. Next time on Committable. Involuntary psychiatric commitment lets people know that there's a system that's going to deal with people who will break down in families and schools and workplaces. In other words, it's a signal. It's a quiet signal because it's not discussed that often that the society will try to preserve the integrity of the social institutions that it prizes. And it's gonna do that by seizing and holding away. They're gonna be kept away because they appear to threaten that prized institution and they're not easily persuaded to stop. So I would guess that most people, even without thinking about it too explicitly, are very grateful to know that psychiatry, aided, sanctioned by the state, exists to do that. Committable is produced by Jim McQuaid and Michelle Stockman. This episode was written, edited, and hosted by me, Jesse Mangan. All music is from the song Reasonable by Christopher G. Brown. Additional production for this episode by Brian Patrick Williams. 